What's up, guys? My name is Sam, and I'm the creator and host of Creme de la Crime podcast. The mission of this show is to bring awareness to unsolved missing persons cases from all across the country. In the United States, 600,000 adults and children are reported missing every single year. Although most are quickly found, there are still tens of thousands that remain missing for more than one year. As of 2022, there are still more than 17,000 unsolved missing persons cases and 13,000 unidentified body cases across the United States that remain open. For the first year, I'm going alphabetical order by state and talking about cases involving all ages, races, and backgrounds. Don't forget to subscribe and join me every single Thursday to hopefully help bring these people home. We're back, and this is episode 39 for True Crime B&B. Yep, I'm Bailey. And I am Beth. And this week is a normal week, so Bailey will be bad, and I will be wonderful and beautiful and fantastic like usual. You're the favorite child here. I'm the golden child again this week. <sighs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about your luck. Well, let's start out with a super bummer, because this just happened in 2017. Oh boy, okay. And it is pretty internationally well-known, but I didn't know about it yet, so I thought maybe some of our listeners might not have either. Okay. I'll start out in 1987 with Kim Wall. She was born in southern Sweden. Kim studied international relations at London School of Economics and then got her master's at Columbia University School of Journalism. Wow, really smart. Mm Mm-hmm. And from there, she decided to go into freelance journalism and traveled to some of the world's most dangerous places because a lot of people weren't willing to go there. And she thought, well, if I can get the story, then I'm going to do it. Also, she had a very heavy focus on humanitarianism and also on social justice issues. So she would try to go to places that weren't getting a lot of coverage as well. One time she even all by herself snuck into North Korea to cover a case. Oh, wow. So she's very brave for what she's done in her career. Brave and some might say a little bit foolish because that's so dangerous. Yeah, but just keep that in mind. All of that she's been fine through. And throughout her time in journalism, she has been published in the New York Times, Guardian, Time, and The Atlantic. Wow. Multiple times. Those are pretty big formats, so good for her. In 2017, Kim was 30 years old, and she lived in Copenhagen with her partner, Ole. On August 10th, 2017, Kim and her partner, Ole, were hosting a going-away party at their home because on August 16th, so this is occurring August 10th, August 16th, they are planning to move from Copenhagen to Beijing. Oh, wow. So this is another one of her temporary stops. This is not permanent relocation. She doesn't have a permanent home. She's just in Copenhagen because it's close to family and they were renting a place there and then they were going to go out to the next adventure. Okay. So August 10th, they have all their friends over at their home in Copenhagen and they're having a big going away bash. However, she got a text message from a self-proclaimed inventorpreneur. Adventurepreneur? Yeah, he's an inventor slash entrepreneur. So his inventions to make money type of thing. Stupid term, but he invented it. I just had to make fun of I was going to say, it. I bet he made that term up <laughs> himself. Did. Yep. Okay. This man was named Peter Madsen. Kim had been trying to get a hold of him for months, and he had just completely been blowing her off. She wanted to interview him because he had invented, I put this in air quotes, the world's largest made-at-home submarine. Wow. Yes. 
And the thing I was going to tell you is I don't know what the regulations are as far as submarines go, but he apparently did some engineering degree and then dropped out, so never even finished that and still got this high-paying job with these tech companies to start inventing stuff. I don't really understand. I mean, you can be an inventive genius and not have a college degree. Sure. There are a lot of really, really smart people in the world who never Mm -hmm. went to college, so that's not really here or there. I guess. But then he also started to dabble into space rockets and going into outer space travel, and that's what Kim was interested in interviewing him about. Okay. So he finally got in contact with her on one of her last days here in Copenhagen, and she said, well, I'm about to leave, and he said, I'm about to head out on my submarine. Do you want to come out and see it? I'll give you a tour, and you can interview me here at the submarine. And she said, tonight's my going away party, but I've been waiting for months, and I'm very dedicated to my career, and she decided to go ahead, head out for two hours, meet up with this guy at the submarine, and then come back to the party. Okay. I don't think I would be too gung-ho about going on somebody's made-at-home submarine. Yeah, but she's done things that seem way more dangerous. So to her, this is just... Yeah. Yeah. At 7 p.m. the evening of August 10th, Kim and Peter boarded the submarine together, which was called the UC-3 Nautilus. Mm Mm-hmm. It was expected to be a two-hour journey. They were just going to go down underwater, go like a mile or two, and then come back and get off the same place they boarded. Kim sent a final text to her partner that said, I'm still alive, as a joke. Oh, jeez. That's foreboding. Mm-hmm. And then she said, but I'm going down now. I love you. He did bring coffee and cookies, though. And so she was excited. Oh, wow. The last photo was taken right before they went down about 7 o'clock p.m. And Kim... Who took that photo? There were other boats in the area. They were like, bye, bon voyage. It was an exciting send-off type of thing. So a lot of people knew she was going with this guy. It wasn't like a big secret. Yeah, okay. As the evening went on, two hours became three hours and then four hours. And finally, her partner, Ole, was like, I'm not hearing back from her. I sent her multiple text messages. It's like after midnight now. She said she'd be back by nine o'clock. So he actually did some investigative work himself and he had met this guy before she went and got on the submarine with him and knew where he lived so he went over to that guy's house and met up with his wife who didn't even know he was taking the submarine out that day okay at this point ole is really scared and decides to contact the danish authorities and they immediately marked her as a missing person okay nobody could get a hold of them or even find a radar of his ship that was at 2 30 a.m now it's august the 11th Nothing was seen of his little submarine at all until 10.30 a.m. the next day, so on the 11th. A lighthouse finally put their little spotlight out and were able to spot the submarine under the water. So they went ahead and called out for rescue helicopters, and they all flew out. They started trying to connect again on the radio with Peter and ask him if he needed help, and he wasn't getting back. Okay, so when the Coast Guard or whoever the Danish Coast Guard... The rescue helicopters? Yeah, the Danish authorities Mm -hmm. came and they saw it. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was above surface? It was below the surface. They could still see it from the surface. Okay. So finally they arrived and began, like, lowering, trying to assess the situation, see what they could do to help. And by the time they got there and had people in the water, water had completely filled up the submarine. 11 a.m. on the 11th of August, the rescue people got there. They start trying to open the hatch at the top of the submarine and get people out. And finally, Peter swims out of the hatch. 
he's good. He gets actually rescued, not even by the rescue helicopters. He gets to the surface of the water a little bit before they got there. He was pulled on board with some fishermen and taken to the shore. He gets there, the police are like, um, hey, you had a woman with you, right? Where the fuck is she? Is she still down there? Does she need us? And Peter tells them, oh, that girl Kemp, no big deal. I dropped her off last night at 1030 at the same port I picked her up at. She's already back on land. She's fine. Yeah. And they're like, okay, but she hasn't contacted her long-term boyfriend that she's moving countries with in six days since she got back. So we don't believe you. Right. They did check. They had the submarine taken up and excavated, and she was not in the submarine. Okay. And so they took him in. After he gave the statement about dropping her off 10.30 the previous night at the same port she had taken off from, they went, and he didn't know this, the entire coastline there is completely on CCTV footage. Right. And he had never once returned there. So they said, okay, we know you're lying. And at this point, he decided to say on August 12th, he retracted that statement and said, actually, a terrible accident happened while we were on board. What happened was she was messing around with the hatch at the top. It had fallen inwards and it's a 150 pound hatch door and it hit her in the head and she just died. So I didn't know what to do and I tossed her body in the ocean and panicked. That's his story now. Mm-hmm. That sounds totally legit to me. Mm-hmm. Because I think she's totally going to go on board this little specimen of a ship that he's built and, and start messing around with a 150-pound hatch door. As if she's, like, not stupid. Anybody who's in a submarine and sees something that twists, you probably know that's going to make water come in here and that's bad. Nobody's yeah. going to do that. That's not something that, <laughs> that a woman who's been around the world and has been in combat zones and has seen things, she's not going to be stupid enough to mess with that. Yeah. That's the story he's running with and sticking with it from August 12th. August 21st rolls around. He's still in custody this entire time. And Kim's mutilated torso was found washed up ashore on the coast of Denmark. Just torso, no limbs or head? Mm-hmm. Just oh, the torso. Jesus Christ. All they knew from this was she had a total of, that they could count at least, 15 stab wounds, mostly in the genital region. Ugh. Oh. And that's just what they saw on her torso. That's just on her torso so far. Jesus Christ. October 6th, they went out with cadaver dogs. I didn't know that it even existed, honestly. But they had cadaver dogs that are like swim cadaver dogs and can identify if there are bodies underneath them in the water. And they found additional plastic bags that were weighed down with car pipes with her head, legs, all of her clothes, and a knife floating in the water. What the hell? I don't know how he thought he was going to not be suspected of this. Fucking arrogant douchebag. He's unbelievable. So October 30th, they asked him if he'd like to make another statement. And he came back and said his final statement that he stuck with for the rest of time, still does, about what had happened. And this time he says that actually she didn't get hit in the head, like I said. That wasn't the accident. But there was, Oh, you're kidding me. But there was an accident that happened. It, well, I didn't kill her. He went ahead and went up on deck. He's up on the top part, and he's just out, I don't know, having a smoke or looking around. I don't know what he's doing up there by himself. But he left her below deck. While he's up there, somehow, something went wrong in the engine room, and exhaust fumes just came and must have suffocated her. Yeah, and in addition to the carbon monoxide, it was probably a bunch of knives that flew out of the engine and stabbed her 50 times in her torso. In the groin. In the groin. Uh And then dismembered her. Mm -hmm. 
Well, no, he has a story for that, too. That's, oh, that's oh. part of this. So, Sorry, I didn't give him a chance to finish. It's okay. No, yeah. He, it's all going to come around. It makes sense. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, shit. The exhaust fumes took over the cabin. She passed out and passed away from carbon monoxide poisoning. By the time he even realized something was wrong, it was too late. He found her down there. And so he panicked and decided, okay, well, I'm going to carry her back up the ladder through the hatch and try to get her to fresh air. And then he realizes... He can't carry her all the way up that ladder, and he can't push her through the latch and hold it open at the same time. So the only logical thing here to do, not call for help, not radio anybody, is to dismember her and then take her body parts up one by one. And get her fresh air? And get her fresh air. Maybe Because can, once, like, once he gets it. her head up there by itself, maybe she can breathe the fresh air and come back to life. Yep. So that's his what story. The f- what the hell? How can someone so smart be so stupid to think that that would sound legitimate to anybody? I don't think he's that smart. So just to rule out his story, because they had to, to take him to court, they had autopsies performed on all of the body parts, and from those they found that there were no traces of exhaust fumes in her lungs, Yeah. and there was no blunt force trauma anywhere on her head or body, even to begin with, other than the stab wounds and then the incision wounds. It's also worth noting they didn't find any traces of his DNA on her anywhere or in her, but she was in the water for weeks, you know? So mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that he didn't assault her. But they did when he got up to shore and was rescued or whatever, and they took him into custody right away. They did collect all of his clothing, and they found he had semen all in the inside of his underwear. Hmm. So either he doesn't change his underwear for a couple days, or at some point he jerked off with her in the middle of the submarine, or he has assaulted her. So I think it's safe to say he probably at least attempted to sexually assault her. Yeah, there's something going on there. Yeah. They also found on his computer at home a bunch of snuff videos downloaded from the internet. Specifically, the day before taking her out on this journey in the submarine, he had watched a decapitation how-to video. Holy crap. So if that's not premeditated, I don't know what the fuck is. This is one of those situations where he had absolutely zero chance of getting away with this. Mm -hmm. There were too many people that knew she was going to be with him. And then he changed his story over and over and over. There's no possible way that he was going to get away with this. And so he did this for absolutely nothing. I think, honestly, his thought process was, I hit her body well enough. It's never going to wash up. It's, they're not going to find it. And then somehow her torso got loose or something. I don't know. And that's just how he got caught. Because otherwise... Well, even if she had gotten knocked out, or even if she had knocked the hatch onto her own head and died, mm-hmm. like he first claimed, he yeah, would still be responsible to get her back to where he picked her up mm-hmm. so that she could be treated with respect in death. Yep. Not chopped into pieces and thrown into the ocean mm-hmm. and weighted down with car pipes. Well, that was one of the more infuriating things. But in his court statements, he was saying, oh, yeah, all those times I lied about the truth about what happened, I just didn't want her family to be embarrassed. I didn't want to like her to lose dignity to them because of what I had to do to get her out of there. And I'm like, you didn't have to do any of this, you fucking idiot. Yeah. Well, even if it was true, he didn't have to do any of that. All he had to do was radio the Coast Guard and say, oh my God, this thing happened and I'm so sorry if this This happened This reporter is here. We had an accident. Here's what happened. Come help. That's what a normal human would do. And they would have brought their little basket and they would have strapped her into it and they would have taken her up through the hatch and Mm -hmm. 
and she would have made it home to her family. But obviously he couldn't do that because it's not what happened. So he reenacted the snuff video he watched the day before, Mm -hmm. got his rocks off with this horrible thing. It's probably the only reason that he even called her back and asked her to come. They did have a bunch of women come forward in the trial saying, I had to block his number. He kept harassing me nonstop to come on his submarine with him for the weeks leading up to this. So he'd been wanting to do this for a while. And so he got desperate, reached out to somebody who wanted to talk to him about his inventions and said, well, I can lure her out here and she'll trust me oh and God. did this. Yeah. That's so disgusting. April 25th, 2018, he was convicted on all three charges brought to him, which were murder, indecent handling of a corpse, and sexual assault, and he received life in prison. To honor Kim, there are a couple of things that have been put in place because of her. So her alma mater, Columbia University, now has a Kim Wall Scholarship awarded to journalism students. Awesome. Google now hosts the Kim Wall Best Digital Reporting Awards. Thought that was kind of cool. They have a whole award ceremony honoring her now. Yeah. They also have something that her family started called the Kim Wall Memorial Fund, who partnered with International Women's Media Foundation. And every year they give out grants to three female journalists who do exceptional work investigating international stories. In 2019, a retired Danish school teacher happened to accidentally invent a new kind of rose. A new kind of rose? Yeah, they were just messing around. Like a new like, hybrid? Yeah, like a hybrid. And now it is officially named the Kim Wall Rose. Oh, that's cool. And I wanted to show you a picture because I know you and you like flowers and stuff. And I thought that'd be a happy way to end it. I like flowers <laughs> and stuff. I did know that story, but that was a lot more detail that I did not know. Ugh. So thank you for sharing that. That poor woman. Poor woman. Just trying to do a good job. She had a good cause. Everything she did was for a good cause, too. And that's just. Yeah. This is not a survivor story, so don't get your hopes up about a survivor in this story. Okay. At about 2 p.m. on December 16, 1988, two Georgia Department of Transportation workers discovered a woman's body along the northbound lanes of Interstate 59. She had been left in Dade County, Georgia, about five miles from the Alabama state line and 30 minutes south of Chattanooga, Tennessee. She was found wearing Calvin Klein jeans, a long-sleeved blue thermal shirt over a navy blue bra, black lace-up ankle-high shoes, a yellow gold chain, and on her hand was a white gold pinky ring with a heart emblem. She had a 6 to 8 inch scar on her left forearm and multiple piercings in each ear. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. No identification was found with her remains, and there were basically no clues as to her identity. This unknown victim was given the pseudonym of Rising Fawn Jane Doe. A forensic artist made a drawing to depict what Rising Fawn Jane Doe may have looked like in life, and later a clay mold was created based on her facial bone structure. The crime scene evidence was collected and saved, but at the time, there wasn't enough technology to really be able to analyze it for clues and information, because this was only 1988. Mm -hmm. So for years, there was almost nothing to go on. There was DNA, but at the time of the crime, there was no way to connect it to anyone. Without anything to determine who she was, she was eventually buried in Dade County, Georgia at Lake Hill Memorial Gardens with a grave marker that read Jane Doe, 1988. Throughout the years, two people were suspected of her crime. Serial killer Samuel Little actually confessed to the murder, but he was eliminated as a suspect through the DNA evidence that had been collected. Another serial killer, Larry Dwayne Hall, was investigated as a possible suspect due to the speculation that he was responsible for the disappearances of up to 45 young women that were sexually mutilated and found near Civil War memorials in the South. 
But the only claim I found that rising fawn Jane Doe had been sexually mutilated came from one single Radford University article, and I haven't found any corroboration of that information. Hmm. So I don't believe it's true that she was sexually mutilated. Hall, though not ultimately a believable suspect for this murder, is incarcerated in a North Carolina federal prison for the 1993 kidnapping and murder of Jessica Roach. So both of those guys were considered as suspects for Rising Fawn Jane Doe's murder, Mm -hmm. but both of them were ruled out. So for the next 17 years, the case went cold with very, very few advancements. And as I said, they did do composite drawings and they built a clay mold based on her bone structure trying to find people that might recognize her the way she might have looked Mm -hmm. in her life. But no one seemed to recognize her face, so the sketches didn't bring them any results. In 2005, the case was reassigned to GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Agent Adam Jones, who pursued it with a strong commitment to finding her identity because she'd already been there for 17 years. Mm -hmm. And he enlisted the assistance of the FBI to perform testing that had been developed since the time of the murder. So now there was DNA testing available, but the DNA database for comparison was still relatively small and there just were no matches or hits. Yeah. Over the years, as DNA technology became more advanced and more avenues opened up for comparison of the DNA profiles that were obtained from crime scene samples, the database continuously became larger and additional methods of analysis became possible. In January of 2022, the FBI decided to pursue genetic genealogy. As we've found in many cases in the last several years, genetic genealogy allows law enforcement to narrow down the sources for DNA samples that they've tested, even if the person who was the source of the DNA hadn't provided a sample for testing. Mm. So the FBI worked with Othram Lab, which is a DNA testing lab, to request investigation via genetic genealogy. Othram crafted a family tree from the DNA using the available genealogical databases, and in March 2022, a biological family member of the victim was found. They were contacted, interviewed, and it was revealed that this person had a family member who had been reported as missing in January 1989. This information led them to Norton Shores, Michigan, and a fingerprint match was made with the victim. The victim was Stacy Lynn Chahorsky, who was only 19 years old at the time of her murder. Stacy had been born and grew up in Norton Shores, Michigan, which is a little town on the shore of Lake Michigan. Stacy had a brother a year younger than her, and she had an adventurer spirit. Once she was out of high school, she wanted to see some of the world, which is a common craving mm-hmm. for many kids who grow up in little towns. They want to see what else there is. Mm-hmm. So Stacy excitedly packed some clothing and left Michigan to travel the country. Unfortunately, against her mother's advice, her means of travel was hitchhiking, which even in the late 1980s was a really dangerous way to go. Mm-hmm. In September of 1988, she called her mother, Mary Beth Chahorsky, now her name is Mary Beth Smith, and said she was in North Carolina and was starting to make her way back to Michigan, so she was headed home. Her plan was to go first to Chicago, then Flint, and then on to Muskegon County, but Stacy never arrived home. Mary Beth never heard from her daughter again, and after several months of not having heard from her, in January 1989, Stacy was reported missing to the Norton Shores police. But no one was looking for her in Georgia, so somehow she had gotten way off course, and no one in Georgia knew that she was a missing person. But now she had been found after more than 33 years. Mm-hmm. Upon confirming Stacy's identification, the jewelry that she had been wearing was returned to her mother, and arrangements were made for Stacy to return to Michigan for reburial near her family. So she was exhumed and returned to her hometown. 
So having identified Stacy, as well as where she was coming from and where she was trying to go, the investigators now had a starting point to find information about the habits of her killer. Mm -hmm. They decided to take similar steps to find the killer as they had to identify Stacy. Because she had been sexually assaulted, they had his DNA too. Through forensic-grade genome sequencing, they created a comprehensive genealogical profile of their suspect. Once his DNA was sent to and analyzed by the lab, investigative leads were developed and potential family members were identified and interviewed. DNA swabs of these potential relatives were taken and analyzed, and a biological family member of the killer was confirmed. They cooperated with giving an interview and helped to narrow down who the perpetrator was. Stacy's killer was identified on June 13, 2022, as Henry Frederick Wise. And I saw one article that called him Weiss, but everywhere else they said Wise, W-I-S-E, who authorities said went by the nickname Hoss. He was 34 years old at the time that he murdered Stacy. He was a truck driver who drove a route for the Western Carolina Trucking Company, which regularly took him on a route through Chattanooga, Nashville, and Birmingham on the exact route where Stacy was found. She ran across him, told him where she was trying to go. He said, I can get you to Chattanooga. Yeah, I'm going north, Yeah, lady. Yeah. Going west and then north. Mm-hmm. And so she took the ride. Mm. Wise had a long criminal history theft, assault, obstruction with a police officer, but these offenses took place long before mandatory DNA sampling had become the norm, so his DNA was just not in the system. Mm -hmm. But now his DNA sample from the crime scene has been uploaded to CODIS, so if he ever committed any other similar crimes, it's hoped that now those may be solved as well. He won't, however, face justice in criminal court. Wise was, in addition to being a truck driver, also a stunt driver who performed in spectacles at speedways and carnivals and those kinds of events. I remember when I was a kid, they used to have the hell drivers and they would drive on two wheels and stuff like that. So like an evil Knievel wannabe? Sort of, except in cars instead of motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So they performed stunts. I gotcha. Authorities discovered in 1999 at the Myrtle Beach Speedway in South Carolina, Wise had crashed a vehicle that he had purchased from a scrapyard. The vehicle stalled and caught fire. It was engulfed in flames before he could escape, and he was not wearing a flame-proof suit. He literally burned to death. So a reporter asked the investigators from the GBI what Stacy's mother's reaction was upon finding out that her daughter's killer had died in such a way. The response was, she was very at peace with it, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fair statement. Well, it's not like anybody murdered him. He has no one but himself to blame for that, too. So, yeah. Upon positive identification of both Stacy Lynn Chahorsky and Henry Wise, this became the very first case in the country where both the victim and the perpetrator were identified through genetic genealogy. And I want to add a footnote that genealogical DNA analysis and building these family trees to find an individual, this is not easy or cheap to do. So the work to identify the killer via Othram Labs was actually actually funded by AudioChuck, which is headed by Ashley Flowers of Crime Junkie. Oh, I didn't So know. they are putting their money where their mouth is. So, I like that. Yeah, good deed by AudioChuck. Mm-hmm. And I think that they regularly provide funding to Othram Labs for this purpose because they're trying to solve these, these old crimes. I just thought that was really interesting and cool to know. Mm-hmm. That's all I have for that story, but I do have an update on something that we talked about in episode 37. Episode 37 about Christy Giles and Hilda Marcella Cabrales Arsola. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which, the day we're recording this, just actually went out yesterday. Mm-hmm. We talked about the initial charges that were written to hold David Pierce until they could get enough to charge him for the deaths of Christine Hilda. Right. The initial charges against him were the illicit drugging and sexual assaults against multiple women over a period of at least 12 years. And we had wondered aloud about the statute of limitations on rape. That's right. Okay. And the secret of administering of a drug to another person in the state of California. So what the statute of limitations on those things would be because they made it sound as if they charged him with all of those crimes that had happened all the way back to 2012. Mm -hmm. My good friend Don from Central Ohio, being the data-driven genius guy that he is, (laughs) he couldn't stand not knowing the answer to that question, and so he looked it up for us, and he sent it to me this morning. Good looking out, Don. Hey, Don. (laughs) Yeah, he's a good guy. The original statute of limitations on rape and sexual assault in California was three years. But over time, it was realized that a whole lot of victims actually try to block out what happened to them. And it's a survival mechanism. So within three years, many of them really haven't even begun to process what actually happened to them. So starting with abuses that occurred in or after 2019, this statute of limitations was increased to 10 years from the last act or three years from the date that they discovered or reasonably should have discovered that an illness or injury resulted from the act. These limitations apply to survivors who were adults at the time of the abuse. For childhood victims of sexual assault, the statute of limitations was revised in January of 2020. So if abuse occurred to a person as a child, they now have until they turn 40 years old or within five years of the discovery of the abuse to file a civil lawsuit. And I think the second part of that means if you were 41 and through your therapy you now realize that your Uncle Chuck was molesting you when you were five Mm -hmm. and you had blocked it out all these years, now you still have five years to go back and file a civil lawsuit against Uncle Chuck. I almost wonder if that also kind of a scenario like that, not necessarily you blocked it out, but kind of if you were drugged and then you woke up, thought you just got too drunk last night, and then somebody had filmed the rape. Does the statute start from the moment you see the film and go, holy shit, I was raped? Yes, I think that's what it means. Well, that's, I would rather, there wasn't a statute, but I mean. Right. I guess that's better. Well, this one for the childhood victims, what I read specifically referred to filing a civil lawsuit. Mm -hmm. I still don't quite know the rule related to criminal charges in the case of the childhood abuse survivors, but at the very least, they have civil recourse for a much longer period of time, Mm -hmm. and that route can at least validate their suffering and put a scarlet letter on their abuser publicly. Well, I'm just shocked that it was only three years I don't know what it was for childhood victims prior to January of 2020, but Mm. the fact that it was three years... They're not even saying, like, you have 10 years to tell somebody. They're saying you have 10 years to not only tell everybody that's going to know if you file this publicly, but tell a court. You have... But, like, that's a lot more to come to than just, hey, mom, this happened to me. Hey, boyfriend, this happened to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's just, like... And the problem is that within... That by 10 years afterwards, you really don't have anything left to prove it. Proof, yeah. Unless, like you said, there's a recording out there. Or a rape kit was done that you just didn't press charges with, maybe. Right. But... Yeah. Oh, that's rough. 
But good information, Don. Thank you. So in general, any other felony, which includes administering a drug to another person for the purpose of committing any felony against them. Mm-hmm. So the drugging part of it is its own crime, but that has a statute of limitations of only three years, as do all felonies other than major crimes that would have over eight years in prison as their punishment. So like violent crimes. Yeah, violent crimes. So thank you to Don Oops. Thank you to Don in Central Ohio. Don, you know the one. You know who you are. We better cut his last name. No, we should just do Don. Beep. (laughs) That would actually be funny. Thank you so much for making the effort to tie that loose end up for us. And now we know he's loyal and listening to every episode. (laughs) Or that's the only one he's listened to so far. We don't know. Well, then he has another like 40 episodes to catch up. Before he has to send us more facts. We're up to like 46 now. 46 total if you count all of our bonus episodes oh, and all of our regular yeah. episodes. All right. As usual, we can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at True Crime BNB. You can send us an email and you can send us updates to our previous episodes if you so choose. Thank you, Don. At truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. We've actually been receiving some new reviews on Apple, and we appreciate mm-hmm. that so much. And if you would like to leave us a review, we would be grateful for that. I think that's it. Yeah. Next week, we'll see you for the big 4-0. That's right. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. What do you want from me? She says, chase me. I'm not going to chase you. Denmark. Denmark. Fuck you. (laughs) It's pretty. It kind of looks like a carnation to me. Well, it is pretty. It's very, very fuchsia. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. lots and lots and lots of petals. It's almost like a carnation. Girl. (laughs) What? I literally said, it almost looks like a carnation to me. And then he said, it's almost like a carnation. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was moving my other update back it's to the okay. end of my story. I literally paused for a second because I was like, I just fucking said that, right? Or it was out of my head. Like, no, it was not in your head. I just said what you said and tried to take it from myself. That's what mothers do. We steal the thunder from our children. Well, I would have no thunder if it weren't for you, so I guess. We are the, we are the lightning and the thunder. Lightning. Lightning. Oh, it's thunder. Lightning. Lightning. The way you love me is frightening. Meow. <laughs> <laughs>